0: With that, we're going to jump into the word of the Lord today, but I am going to start with a, a short illustration here, I, and I want you to know that I have permission to do this because somebody always comes up to me and says, I can't believe you do I have permission, okay? My middle daughter, Eva, is amazing. She's incredible, uh, but she can be quite salty, if you know what I mean. If any of you have had teenage daughters, you know the salt is strong with them. Uh, and not salt like salt, but if you understand salty, like a little salty language, not not bad words, just getting a little feisty. And so I don't know if you've seen this meme that goes around online. Hopefully I have it, but this this guy, eh, yeah, yeah, that guy, that that's they call him Salt Bay. He's he's a he's a chef that just sprinkles a little salt on everything. And so I called my middle daughter. Salt Bay, uh, because, you know, a so she's just got to sprinkle a little salt on everything to keep life interesting as a middle child, and so she's my Salt Bay, and you're going to ask yourself, what does that have to do with the Word of God? Watch me. <laughs> Turn, Matthew chapter 5, we are still in the section of Scripture that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. But it wasn't really on a mount, right? We talked about it, especially for us that live in Montana. We would have looked at that little hill and been like, that's adorable. That's not a mountain. That's, that's a hill that's a if, that's a speed bump for Montana. Now, where I used to live in, in North Dakota, we would have been like, look at the size of that mountain. But here, it's just a mound at best. And after the Beatitudes, we come to this next section. In verses 13 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5, it talks about not who we are, like those beatitudes, but it talks about the kind of influence that if we live out those beatitudes, then the influence that we're going to have on people in the world should look like this. In Matthew verse 5, 13, you, remember he's talking to his disciples And everyone else is kind of listening in. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We are called to be salty. Not in the same way as Salt Bay. In a different way than that. We're not called to just kind of have that salty language, as we might call it, but we are called to be the ones in the world who function as salt functioned in those days. Back then, before refrigeration, salt stopped decay and corruption. Salt would stop the corrupting, the decaying of the world. And in those days, that was the only way that they had to keep meat fresh, was to surround it In salt, to stop it from just rotting. And so Jesus is telling us, you are to be the part of the world that keeps decaying and corruption from destroying everything. You are called to be salt. And he calls his followers to do just that, to be agents of life, to be salt in this world. Salt also brings out the flavor, Now, some people would argue. But salt is supposed to bring out the flavor in other things. He says, I want you to add your saltiness to the kingdom of God and bring out the flavor of everything that God is doing. He wants us to add flavor to the world that we live in. But it also, what else does salt do? It makes you thirsty for more, doesn't it? One pastor I listened to this week said, his friend was drinking a soda, and, he, and while the friend wasn't looking, he just kept adding salt to the soda—not so much to make it taste salty, but just enough for him to, like, I can't drink enough soda. I'm just more and more and more thirsty. That's another thing we do if we are salt in this world. We are creating a greater thirst for the things of the kingdom of God. God is calling us be salt in this world and create a greater thirst the things of God, because we live in a world that is dying of spiritual dehydration, and we need to help people realize that they have a thirst in them, and maybe they don't even understand what that thirst is, maybe they're just saying, there's something missing, and I don't know what it is, and I love those stories of when somebody meets a Christian, and they just say, you're weird, but like in a good way, and I want to know why. Why are you fulfilled? Why, why do you not have this longing, this, this darkness? What's going on in you that you are not thirsty, but that you are hydrated? And then people can tell them about their relationship with the Lord. There's also an amazing warning in this verse that if we lose our saltiness, if we lose the flavor that brings a thirst for Jesus in this world, then the only thing that we are good for is to be trampled under feet. Now, amazingly, we have the grace and mercy of Jesus, and he can bring that saltiness back to us. But there's times in our lives where maybe we lose that salt, and then we're no longer the good salt, that that really delicious pink Himalayan salt. We become like the mag chloride that Doug Duchesne pours on everything. Right? You don't want to eat that on your baked potato, trust me. It might taste real salty, but it ain't. Right? We lose that saltiness. We are not only called to be salt in this world, but let's look at the next couple verses. You probably know it already if you've spent any time in church in your life, but we are called to be salt and also light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called not just to be salty, but to be light. The world is dark and lost and we are called to be the light that is shining towards Jesus. I love this because I think about it. I I heard a story one time, an illustration from a friend of mine because we don't create the light, do we? Like I'm not really the light. You're not the light, but we reflect the light that comes from God. And so I had a friend who would talk about Wanting to be the moon. I thought that was so cool. He said, I want my life to reflect the light of the sun, S-O-N, just as the moon reflects the the light of the sun, S-U-N. And I want to do everything that I can to be a full moon, reflecting all of the light of God that I can possibly reflect Showing his light into the world. Because notice, lights don't shrink back and just exist. They shine. We don't hide our light under a bucket. We shine the light of Jesus as brightly as we can in whatever situation that God has given us the ability to shine it in. And notice why. I love when the Bible gives us a real clear Here's what you're doing, and here's why. That's how my brain works. He says, I want you to be salt, and I want you to be light. And then it says, why? So that they, everyone who doesn't know the Lord, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He tells us very specifically, this is why I'm calling you, so that other people will see. See, we know As Christians, we know that we're not saved by doing good works. We know that we're not Christians because we do good things. But that doesn't mean we don't do good works. We don't do them in order to be saved by the glorious God. We do them because we are saved by the glorious and merciful and patient God. We do them as a reaction of love to our God who loves us. And we do those things so that those who do not yet know Jesus can see how we live our lives for him. This is the kingdom of God mentality that God has called us all to live out. That it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's not just about our fire insurance so that we're not eternally separated from God. But we realize that we are living in the kingdom of God now. And trying to bring as many people as we can with us to build that kingdom. And to shine his light and to be salty. And then the Sermon on the Mount continues. Jesus has done things that nobody can ignore now. His miraculous signs and wonders show everyone clearly that he has indeed claimed and shown himself to be something far greater than they have ever seen. But there's these whispers amongst the religious people. There's these whispers where they're saying, he doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about the Old Testament. He doesn't care about what Moses said. And for them, that's their whole world. That's everything. And so they start to whisper, what, what, what is he really doing? Because they know in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes and does a sign and wonder amongst you, you are to examine him to make sure that what he's doing and saying is not leading you away from God. And so they know that and they think he doesn't care about the law. And so Jesus has gained this reputation as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And he sure as heck is no friend of the religious elite that are living in his world. And so these people are wondering, where does he stand in relationship to the law? And Jesus addresses this idea head on in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away not an iota, not a dot, or in your verse, it might say jot or tittle, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi, the, the law, the prophets, the writings, the poems, all of this. And Jesus states plainly, plainly, I did not come to abolish the law. What does that mean? I think it means a couple of things. He's saying he is the fulfillment of the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. He's letting them know I am the only man who has ever lived that could actually keep the law perfectly. Because we need to understand this. If we try to be saved by all of the laws of the Old Testament, you will fail. I will fail immediately. There's hundreds of laws, thousands of things around the laws, and he's letting them know, you cannot be saved that way, but I came to fulfill it. And he's also letting them know, that he is the center theme of the entire Old Testament. Do you know that? Do you know that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus? Even though he wasn't born until Matthew? But the entire Old Testament is pointing towards this coming Messiah that will save us. So the whole story is about him and he's letting them know I am here to fulfill everything that the Old Testament said. All the prophecies. Everything. God called me, Jesus would say, God put me in this world to do that. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Well then, what was the law for? Why did God give it? Why did it exist in the first place? Paul tells us really clearly in Galatians. The law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. The whole reason that God gave us this law was to show us that we cannot be perfect on our own. That we cannot earn the salvation of a perfect God. That we need to be saved. And then in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, and when Jesus says this, your Bible might say assuredly, When Jesus says these words, it means that what he's about to say, not that everything he says is not important, but when he says, for surely I say to you, there's gravitas. This is him saying, like, you you need to listen to this, okay? So, So for surely I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is a really cool idea if you have just a little bit of understanding about Hebrew. Because, throw that next slide up. These are called the jot and the tittle. So, the jot is the Hebrew letter yod. And it's the smallest letter in their whole alphabet. It's the smallest one. And the tittle is that little tiny top. Right? So, it's the tiniest part of the smallest letter. And so, Jesus says... Everything, not not an iota, not a dot, not a jot, not a tittle, will be taken away until I come to fulfill the law. And it says, until all is accomplished, there is a goal. The kingdom of God in its fullness, where Jesus comes and he redeems creation and brings people back into perfect relationship with their father. He says, until he does all of that, the law still exists to show us that we are desperately in need of him. We are unable to fulfill perfection. And Jesus wants us to know how important all of this is. I love that God cares so much for the accuracy of his word people argue about this all the time. I'm going to get a little bit into apologetic stuff right now. If you're a Bible person, you like learning about this stuff, awesome. If not, listen anyways. There's some cool things you see. People will regularly question how is it possible that the word of God can be trustworthy after generations and generations of people copying it and and hearing it, and they say, Somehow, at some point, something must have got twisted by man and all these things. But in reality, there's a tremendous amount of proof that these words have stayed completely accurate over all of time. Prior to 1947, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we had were from around 900 A.D., so almost a 1,000 years after Jesus. But then in 1947, there was a little shepherd boy who was trying to get his sheep to come out of a cave. And he threw a rock. This is a true story. I see some of the youth like, what are you talking about? He threw a rock into the cave to scare his sheep. And when he threw the rock in there, he heard something break. And so he goes into this cave and he finds uh, these, these containers. One of them were broken. And inside of them are all these papers. And he can tell they're very, very old. He can tell they're probably very important. So he takes them to a Bible scholar and they find out that these are what are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think I have a picture of these. This is just one of them. And they found out that these scrolls were from 150 years before the time of Jesus. So they're a thousand years older than the oldest ones we had before these were found. That's pretty cool all by itself, but what was even more amazing is that they realized as they looked at all of them that they were virtually identical in every single way to the ones that were a thousand years newer. The only differences at all were a couple words spelled differently and a couple punctuations, but the word of God, the message of God had remained exactly the same for a thousand years. And so they started to find those. And, and together we have, we have about 5,750 manuscripts of the New Testament. That are a part of 24,000 fragments. We have 5,750 total. And then 24,000 fragments that kind of get built up. And all of them say the same exact thing. They have not changed. They have not wavered. They are the word of God that somehow he has miraculously, and I do believe it is miraculous, that the word of God has been kept completely and totally pure in all of those times. The scribes that would write these things, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, started their training when they were 14 years old. And they didn't finish their training until they were 41 years old. They wouldn't copy down a whole line like we do. They wouldn't copy down a whole letter, a whole, a whole word like we do. They would copy one letter, they would go to the original, they would make a copy of one letter. They would go back and they'd make a copy of one letter. It had to be spaced perfectly, it had to have a certain amount of letters per line, a certain amount of lines per page. And afterwards, somebody would come, their their boss would come, and they would check to make sure that the exact middle of the page was exactly the same as the exact middle of that page. And if there was one tiny, tiny mistake in any of it, rip it up, burn it, get rid of it forever. So every time a copy of the Word of God was made, that's how it would go about. They would make absolutely sure that it was perfect, Beyond that, I love this. This is me being a nerd. Okay. One of the things that was cool is is there were these archaeologists that would mock people who believe the Bible. Because for generations, they couldn't find places or people that the Bible talked about. And they would say, well, then it doesn't exist. We haven't found it. And so there was this guy. He said, uh, sorry, his name is Sir William... Ramsey. He was a British archaeologist around the turn of the 20th century. And he set out, his life goal was to disprove Luke, the Bible writer Luke, as a, as a historian. He said, as, as an archaeologist, I want to disprove this doctor, Luke, who says all these things. And so he goes into all this study. He wanted to prove that Luke was fraudulent. And after many, many years of research. William decides that Luke is one of, if not the best, historian of antiqui- antiquity. He says, further studies showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other Historians. He sets out to disprove Luke and ends up realizing Luke is the greatest historian he's ever found. Many of you have probably read books by Josh McDowell. He's a modern guy who did the same thing: set out to disprove God and through his study, proved to himself that God is exactly who he says he is, and he became an apologist that has written million, written books that have sold millions and millions of copies talking about the accuracy of the word of God. So that's that guy. And then there's, uh, the, I was talking about the places. I love this. There's a place in John chapter 5 called the Pool of Bethsa- Bethesda. And for generations, from the time of Jesus till the 1900s, archaeologist says this does not exist, and it proves that the Bible is false. And then all of a sudden, In the 1900s, early 1900s, guess what they found? The pool of Bethesda. If you know the story where Jesus heals the man who's paralyzed in the pools, it was there next to the fortress of Antonia. And they found it, and all of a sudden they say, wow, I I guess it was there the whole time. Pontius Pilate, you know that name. The man who gave Jesus over to death for Generations and centuries, they said there is no proof whatsoever that there was ever a governor of Judea who worked for the Roman Empire named Pontius Pilate. Until 1961, probably within some of your lifetimes, they found the Pilate Rock, which we can't read, but it reads Pontius Pilatus, Prefect of Judea and it was a part of one of the buildings there, proving, again, that what the Bible says is absolutely true and accurate. And these things continue to happen. There's still research going on because there's still things, places that they haven't found, people that they haven't proven, and every time they do, it's awesome because you see people who are just like, oh, that's not real. Okay, it's real. Right? The Word of God keeps proving itself over and over again, and then even beyond all of that, Just think about this. The Bible is a unified message. Okay, I want you to think about this. 66 books written by about 40 authors over the course of 1,600 years on three different continents, in three different languages, by people of a variety of backgrounds, fishermen, shepherds, doctors, Jewish rabbis, kings, Who all write about controversial subjects like destiny and evil and faith, all of that, and it has one unified message. Do you think you could go to your neighborhood today and ask 10 people to write a book together and they would come up with a unified view of the world and destiny and evil and good and God? Not a chance. Right? We all have this like game of telephone going on where everything is there. There are people in this room that don't even agree on these things who love Jesus. There are people on my board who I don't agree with on everything. And yet this book is written by 40 people over 1,600 years, and it's got one message. Jesus Christ. The prophecies that have taken place. That have been proven. Events that took place hundreds or thousands of years after they actually happened. 400 years of Egyptian slavery and captivity were prophesied centuries before they took place. 70 years of Judean captivity in Babylon prophesied. In Isaiah 45, it tells us that a man named Cyrus will deliver the captive Jews over to captivity... And that took place 200 years before his birth, and it named him by name, Cyrus. That's not even to get into all the messianic prophecies about Jesus, because there's hundreds of those that we can get into, about him being born at a certain time in a certain place, a certain time of year, and near certain people, I and mean, all of them proven to be true. And so we have this unified message, we have this Word of God, and Jesus tells us that none of it is going to pass until the fulfillment of everything that he's doing, and it even gives us a warning to those who would cast aside the Word of God. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of, God, in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is God's opinion on those who shirk the word of God and just try to get rid of parts of it. We need to be extremely careful when we start to try to cast out parts of the word of God because we don't like certain sections of it. There was a group of people that called themselves theologians that got together a while back and they talked about all the verses in the Bible and after all of them weighed in there was like 10 verses left in the whole Bible that they said that they were sure were from God that's what happens when people who fancy themselves academic and intelligent start to say well let's get rid of everything that we have a little bit of a problem the word of God is good for teaching and improving all people. Yes, there's a whole conversation that I can't get into today about the old covenant versus the new covenant. We are not called to follow all of the ceremonial laws of cleanliness and all that stuff. Those were different laws that were for a different time. But the moral law of God has not changed. And we continue to seek to follow everything that God has called us to. And then Jesus in verse 20 doubles down on these words. You got to think about how crazy this is for the people that he's talking to. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. For the people that are listening to this message, in their head, the holiest people in the world are the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the cream of the crop. They have risen to the top of all humanity. And Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than them, you're lost. In the eyes of the Jewish people at that day, there was a saying. They'd say, if only two people in the whole world make it to heaven, one will be a Pharisee and the other will be a scribe. And then Jesus says, you need to be more righteous. Than they are. If you're sitting in that crowd, you've got to have a pit in your stomach at that moment. But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. In fact, this line is probably the center idea of the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's letting them know your righteousness cannot be your righteousness. Do you hear me? Listen, your righteousness that saves you can't be your righteousness. You are unable to fulfill this kind of righteousness. If you want a relationship with God that is made right and brought back into perfect communion, then the righteousness that you come to God with has to be the righteousness of the only one who could possibly offer That level of righteousness. Jesus. His whole point. The law. I I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm the fulfillment. Of the law. I am the only way. That you can. Reach. Back. To God. And ask to be brought back into a perfect relationship with him. You can't be good enough. Listen to me. Especially if you were raised in different church backgrounds like I was. Or maybe you were raised by a family that just taught you that your efforts are everything. You cannot be good enough. to get to heaven. That standard does not exist for us. Even the Apostle Paul says, why do I keep doing the things I know I don't want to do and I don't do the things I know I should be doing? Harken back to last week, if you are here, we started by the Beatitudes saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And who are the poor in spirit? They're the ones who know. That they need the grace and mercy of God. There are two basic religions in this entire world. I know that you're like, no, there's a whole bunch, but there's really two. There is the religion of human achievement, which means you work, you try, you put in your effort, you try to reach a certain goal of holiness or whatever you want to call it, and then by your effort, You get to go be with God. Every other major religion in the world falls into that category. And then there's only other one major religion. It is the religion of divine accomplishment. It can't be us. It can't be our effort. We cannot be God. And so Jesus' message is that he has accomplished everything so that we may be brought back into relationship with the Father. Those are the two religions. Either you try to earn it on your own and fail, or you understand what Jesus has done for you, and you ask him to save you. You repent from your sins, and you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. We can't be perfectly poor in spirit We don't always mourn our brokenness and our sin. We aren't the picture of meekness. Sometimes we fail to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We fail in being merciful. Our hearts are not always pure. We fail to make peace. We don't often find joy in persecution. We aren't always salty and sometimes our lights dim. And yet all of that, Jesus still comes back to this message, but I will give you my Righteousness. Because we need a Savior whose righteousness can surpass the righteousness of those who look holy but aren't. We need Jesus, and Paul explains this in his second letter to Corinth. One of my favorite lines, I know I always say that, I'm telling the truth. One of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, Paul says to Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake, he made him, says God makes Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. The only way that we might be saved. The only way that we can defeat the brokenness and sin And all the things that are in us, the lostness, the only way is if we can become the righteousness of God. And the only way we can do that is if we ask Jesus to be our righteousness. Do you know this instinctively today? I don't know everybody in this room, but can you feel God telling you, pulling the strings in you, saying, you know this is true. Can you feel that God is showing you something that might be missing in your life? Something that only Jesus can offer. If that's you today, then I would ask you, don't leave this place today without doing some business between you and God. Those of you that know the Lord... You know this is true, and you know how God has changed you from the inside, the way that He has changed every aspect of your life. But you who maybe don't, just put it through yourself. Is there something missing? Is there something that you're longing for on a deep, sprognon level? And you know instinctively by the words of God that this is it. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for every single person in this room. (coughs) I thank you that we are a church family, even with guests that we don't know. I pray that they become a part of this church family. God, I pray that there would not be a person here who does not leave changed, whether it is just to be more sanctified in your name or whether it is to finally turn and repent and offer their lives to you and just beg you to be their savior, to be the righteousness that they need in order to be embraced by you. God, would you work in all of us today? And if anybody here needs to do that, God, would you give them the, the bravery, the courage to talk to me or talk to somebody that brought them here with them? but that they wouldn't just leave and put this on the back burner. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name and all God's people said.